Well, welcome all of you to our evening worship service. Glad to see you out. Our call to worship this evening comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, which says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let us pray. Father, you summon us into your presence. You say, come, let us reason together. And we pray that we would experience this night uh, the, the calm of sins forgiven, that we would experience the loving presence of our Father, and that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified during this hour by the work of your Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 38. If you would take your bulletin in hand, you will find in our order of worship a corporate confession of sin. We will use those words to pray aloud corporately to God, and after that we'll have a few moments of silence where we can silently confess our individual sins and also lift up any other concerns that you might have uh, to the Lord tonight. So let us pray together. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins, and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts, cleanse us from all our offenses, and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desire, that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.
Father, we thank you for condescending to hear our prayers. We thank you that you delight to hear your children cry out, Abba, Father, um, that you delight to send your spirit to bear witness with our own spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus, provided that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so we come bringing our burdens to you because Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I pray that you would hear the prayers of your people. I know that there are folks in this room who are hurting tonight, who have a busy week ahead of them, who have all kinds of trials ahead of them. I pray that you would strengthen them, uh, that you would meet their needs tonight spiritually. We all have needs that we don't even know we have, but you are the God who searches hearts. So search our hearts tonight. Know us and minister to us by your Spirit. And we pray lastly, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us sinners. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our assurance of pardon and forgiveness tonight comes from the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, beginning in verse 25, where Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And this ends the reading of God's word of assurance. Years ago, as a young Christian, I was at a church service, and the preacher was preaching on this passage. And he used a very vivid illustration that I haven't been able to shake ever since. Jesus says, if you are his sheep, if you've believed in him and belong to him, he says, no one is able to snatch you out of my hand. And as if that weren't enough, he follows up by saying, and the Father, who is greater than all, has you in his hand, and no one is able to snatch you out of his. So what we have, we have the hand of Christ on us on this side. We have the hand of the Father on us on this side. We are safe. We are secure. No one is able to snatch us out of God's hand. And that's your assurance uh, of pardon and of acceptance with God for this evening. Amen. As we're about to receive the offering, and as we do so, we're going to sing hymn number 378. Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face.
our scripture reading for the sermon tonight is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we will read there verses 8 through 17. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me... As in the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we've heard your word now. Please now fan into flame the gift of the Spirit that is in us, that we might know you um, in a deeper way, that we might comprehend your love in a deeper way, and that we might walk out of this place lost in wonder, love, and praise. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, I started a series last week that I am entitling Dealing with Spiritual Slumps. Uh, the outline of the series is based on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. It's causes and cures. For those of you not familiar with Lloyd-Jones, a very prominent minister in England uh, during the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. He passed away in 1981. But this book has been used of God to, to minister to Christians all over the world, including myself. And I know some of you have spoken with me about it. So we're just following the outline of his book. And Charles Spurgeon said that the Christian life is no dead level. C.S. Lewis said, he spoke in the screw tape letters of something he called the law of undulation. And what they both mean by that is that the Christian life is not static. It's not a solid escalator ride to heaven with, with no dips along the way. It very often looks like this. We have times where we feel closer to God. We have times when we feel more distant from God. Read Psalm 51. Read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
you get to see these great men, and even our Lord, uh, at their lowest at times in Scripture. So we need to figure out how to deal with these downs so that we can know that we're in them and so we can fight to get out of them. That's the idea. I wish someone had told me that very early in my Christian life because I thought, I always say, you know, when I was baptized as a young man, I said, I'm going to come out of the, up out of that water and I'm never going to sin again. It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't stick like that. As Christians, we're still liable to fall and we're still liable to struggle. So last week... We talked about the need to have spiritual balance and stability. Mind, heart, and will all engaging with God all the time because spiritual imbalance can lead to spiritual slumps. This week, we're going to talk about dealing with the guilt of past sins. Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this passage was called, That One Sin. Most Christians have that one sin or those several sins that perhaps they happened years ago, but we've never able to get fully past them. That's David in Psalm 51 when he says, My sin is ever before me. He had that one sin in the affair with Bathsheba and the events that came as a result of it. That one sin. Roddy Doyle in a short story called Animals, uh, semi-autobiographical, he, he, that one sin for him was that when he was a young father, he ran, accidentally ran over the family pets. And because he was so ashamed of it and didn't want to tell his children, he dragged the pet out into the road and left it there for them to find so that they would assume that a random driver did it. You know, we all have these things we've done in the past. In that story, he tells it, in his true story, years later, years later, he's still wrestling with guilt over the fact that he wasn't honest with his children about that. We all have things that we're wrestling with. Maybe we've wrestled with for years. And the question is, how do you get past that nagging guilt from things you've done in the past? Well, three points from our passage for an answer. We're going to talk about the right use of the law, the tension of our past selves versus our present selves, and then thirdly, the root cause of most of our slumps. So number one, the right use of the law. Paul writes in verse 8 of our passage, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and he continues to list and list and list different acts of those who are in rebellion against God. When you read Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, he's very careful in laying out the moral law of God as having a different role in the life of the believer versus the non-believer. And this, this is so simple and basic and foundational, but it's something we mess up all the time. That's why Martin Luther famously said, if you want to be a true theologian, you have to understand the difference between the law and the gospel. And, and Luther's contention was very few people actually do it. Uh, for instance, the way this works out in Paul's writings, in Romans 8, after Paul says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, in verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. The law, what the interpreters over the years have said about this passage, is clear Paul is saying 
that the law has two specific functions in Romans 8. The law of God, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, love God, love your neighbor, can have two different functions. It can be the law of the spirit of life, but it can also be the law of sin and death. For those who don't know Christ, the law brings nothing but condemnation. It is the law of sin and death. But for those who do know Christ, for those who have experienced that there is therefore now no condemnation for them, the law is a form of life. It can't condemn us anymore. It has no power to judge us. Christ has disarmed its power. He's taken the gavel out of the law's hand. That would be one way of, of saying it because he took the judgment of the law that we deserved, he took in our behalf. Now, you go back and read like our, our forefathers in the Reformed faith in particular. They talked about this all the time. All the time. It's not talked about as much anymore. You know, Samuel Bolton, Walter Marshall, the men who wrote the great books on sanctification in the Reformed faith in the 17th century, Bolton being a Westminster divine, one of the drafters of the Westminster Confession, what they would say over and over again is that our big problem is that as Christians, we tend to look at the law as if it were a covenant of works. And what they mean by that is we look at God's law and we think, if I can measure up to it, then somehow I have earned eternal life. The law is not meant to be the source of eternal life for us. Instead, Christ is meant to be our source of life. And it's through him we get the power to then live lives that are pleasing to God. Speaking of our Reformed forefathers, here's a few quotes. Samuel Bolton, the Westminster Divine, said, We are freed as Christians from the moral law. Freed from it first as a covenant, say our divines. It would save a great deal of trouble to say we are freed from the law as that from which life might be expected on the condition that due obedience was rendered. So what's he saying there? The law is not the source of your judgment anymore because Christ has measured up to it for you and taken its condemnation in your place. So we don't look at it as though if I'm just good enough, then maybe God will accept me. Octavius Winslow, who is a 19th century uh, Reformed thinker, he said, we look not to the law for life. We rest not in the law for hope. We renounce the law as a saving covenant and under the influence of another and higher obligation, our marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ, we bring forth fruit to God. And lastly, under this, John Bunyan, who uh, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which I actually do like that book. There's been some talk about that in the media, a prominent Christian saying he didn't like the book. Bunyan wrote a little poem that says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. He's saying the law... It's, it's a brutal taskmaster. It commands much of you, but it doesn't actually give you the power to do it. It's faith in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Christ working through the Spirit in you that gives us the power to obey. So, if you can't get past guilt, part of the problem may be, as Paul puts it in our passage, that you're using the law unlawfully. You're using that law for something it isn't meant to do, namely justification to establish your righteousness, to establish your standing before God. You're falling into the trap of thinking that your standing before God is based on your performance, when in reality your relationship with God is based on Christ's performance in your place. The gospel is what? Good news. It's not good advice. 
It's not good rules. It's good news that Jesus has obeyed the rules on our behalf and taken the penalty that we deserved. Christ has fulfilled the law so that we can have his righteousness through faith. Just close this point out with a few examples directly from the writing of Paul. Acts 13.38, this is Paul preaching. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So true freedom is what? It's being set free from your sin. It's being made, made alive to God. And he says, Moses couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. It's through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ that this happens. Romans 10.4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that's, he's talking about exactly what Samuel Bolton was talking about earlier. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law is not, does not make our standing before God because Christ has done that for us. And finally, Galatians 5.1, and we could just read all of Paul's letters and example after example. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that yoke of slavery he's talking about there is the old covenant. Spiritual slavery for Paul is believing that you have to stand before God on your own merit. I'm the beloved because I'm better than everybody else. And you know, if, if that's you, my guess is that you live in a constant, on a constant spiritual hamster wheel of highs, feeling really proud and really good about yourself, and lows, where when you get in a room alone, you realize that at the end of the day, when you stand before God, you're a fraud. The right use of the law for the Christian is to feel its condemning power and then to run to Christ, to fly to Christ. Luther said Satan's only sword that he has against us, his only weapon, is to tell us that we're sinners. And he says, it's no problem. The Christian can pull that sword out of his hand and chop Satan's head off because he can say, yes, Satan, I am a sinner. And Christ Jesus died to save sinners. He has no accusations to hurl against us. So number one, that's the use of the law, the lawful use of the law. Here's the second point. We need to understand the tension of our past selves versus our present selves. In the text, Paul says, I, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And then verse 15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, there's a tension here. Paul can say in the present tense, I am the foremost of sinners. But he also says he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. So the past Paul was a sinner. The present Paul is a sinner. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is that the past Paul didn't know Christ who came to save sinners. But the present Paul does. So here's how he looks at his sin. That by loving a sinner like Paul, Christ is displaying his perfect patience as an example 
to all those who would see him, so that we would look at Paul and his past, and the Bible makes sure to tell us his past and all of the evil that he did, so that when we look at him and say, if God, if Christ was patient with him and had mercy on him, then there's no reason he can't with us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon, said, Paul's case alone is proof against the idea that sin can't be forgiven. But there are many other examples in the Bible aside from Paul. You know, imagine a man who was raised in a believing home, handsome young man, the kind of young man all the ladies in church want their daughters and granddaughters to marry. He's a good singer. He's artistic. He's poetic. Uh, he enlists in the army and becomes a war hero. But in the midst of his rise to prominence, he ends up committing adultery on his wife. And friends are coming to him and saying, hey, you're supposed to be a believer. You can't act like this. I know, I know. I'm a believer. I can't act like this. Well, he gets out of the army, and he basically joins the mafia. He has a hit job called on the husband of the woman he had the affair with. Then even the last thing he does on his deathbed is he calls for his son to do a hit job on one of his political opponents. And all the while, he's saying, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. He's praising the Lord in the congregation every Sunday. And you say, could that guy possibly be a believer? Well, I hope so, because it's King David. That's who we're talking about. David, the great war hero who commits adultery, who has one of his best friends and most faithful soldiers killed, who on his deathbed, you think he's learned better, but he's asking Solomon to put one of his opponents to death. Example after example of men and women in the Scripture, they're all messed up. It's the universal condition. We call these people saints, but they were sinners. Like Paul, David is an example of Christ's perfect patience so that when we look at him, we can say, if God could love somebody like that, he can love somebody like me. If we could only be as patient with ourselves as Christ is with us, that's what Paul's saying. You look at his patience to us. There was a, a minister in our denomination who had a very public and dramatic fall uh, and several years ago now, and his name was Tully and Chivijan. He was the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. Very proud, you know, D. James Kennedy's successor. You don't get in a much more spotlight spot than, than that. And as he's rising to fame and he's speaking to thousands, it comes out that not only has he had an affair, extramarital affair, he's had multiple, at least two, I heard. Antolian had to deal with the shame of being not only a minister who was defrocked because of his public shame and disgrace, but also being the fact that he was Billy Graham's grandson and that he had tarnished the legacy of his grandfather. He wrote a note that he published a number of years ago, Tullian did, after the death of his grandfather. He wrote this. As I sat there crying and speechless, I vividly remembered a night when I was in college many years ago. On that night, I got down on the floor, face down, and begged God to make me into a man like my granddad. I asked God to keep me humble like him, to make me a man of integrity like him, to develop the same kind of character in me that he developed in him. God's call put my granddad's feet on a path from which he never wavered. And he fulfilled that calling without ever being guilty of any sexual, financial, or other moral scandals. I wanted to be just like him when I grew up. But in a season of sin and self-destruction, 
egotistical pride and selfish ambition, unfaithfulness to my wife and unfaithfulness to Christ's bride, I lost everything and hurt many people in the process. In 2015, at 41 years old, I broke my life, I broke my family, and I broke the hearts of those who trusted me and looked to me for leadership. Through heaving tears of sorrow and shame, regret and remorse, I sent this text to a friend of mine a couple of nights after Daddy Bill, that's what he called Billy Graham, Daddy Bill's death. Watching my grandfather's life, it has hit me afresh just how selfish and arrogant I was, how much I squandered, how much I blew it. I am undone. And he said after time and deliberation, his friend responded back with six words that were exactly what Tully needed to hear. And those six words were, there was a man named David. Using David as the example, if God can have mercy on him, he can have mercy on you. I used to keep a slingshot on my office desk. There's a little statue slingshot, and I had written on it. I, I say I used to, it'll be on my desk again, but it's in a box somewhere, and I haven't unpacked it yet. I've got to find out where it is. But that slingshot has the words, there was a man named David. And I would look at that thing every day. And it would give me, no matter what I was going through, it would say, God can use you today. God can use you today. There was a man named David. There was a man named Adam. There was a man named Noah. There was a man named Abraham. There was a man named Jacob. There was a man named Samson. There was a man named Solomon. There was a man named David. There was a man named Peter. There was a man named Paul. And because of Christ, you can resolve the tension between your past life and your present life, between your pre-Christ, pre-Christian life and your current Christian life. You can, you can acknowledge that at one and the same time, you are a sinner. But you can say, look how patient Christ is with me. Look how long-suffering Christ is with me. I'm an example, like Paul and like all those who came before us of the patience of Christ. That's our second point. Now lastly, building on all of this, let's talk about what is, I think, probably the root cause of most spiritual slumps that we face. Verse 13 of our passage, Paul says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He went from unbelief to belief, from a lack of faith to faith. The word unbelief is extremely important, and we probably don't talk about it enough. Paul's past self was sinful. His present self is sinful. He's the chief of sinners, but he's no longer living in unbelief. He has faith in Christ. If you find yourself stuck in a spiritual slump now or in the future, because of guilt over past sins, I want to submit to you that the problem isn't the past sin. It's present unbelief. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin has a spectacular book called The Heart of Christ. And one of the things he does in that book is he gives example after example in the pages of the Gospels that when Jesus calls his followers to task, the inner ring, when he calls the disciples to task, it's always for unbelief. That's what he's always, he could go after them 
for any sin he wanted to. He knew their hearts. I have a friend who always says, if anybody ever had the right to just walk around angry and fussing at people all the time, it was Jesus. Because he, he could discern the heart's intents and thoughts of man, as the, as the book of John tells us. But the, I'll give you a few examples. When the disciples were on a boat, freaking out about a storm, thinking Jesus had deserted them because he was sleeping down at the bottom, and they were all going to die, Jesus gets up and he rebukes them before he rebukes, as he rebukes the wind and waves. Luke 8, 25, Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? When Peter walks on the water and starts to sink, what is Jesus' rebuke of him? Matthew 14, 31. Oh, you of little faith. He didn't say, oh, you of little morality. He said, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? When Jesus preaches to the synagogue and declares that he's the Messiah in Nazareth, in Matthew 13, 58, it says, he did not do many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. Mark's version in Mark 6, 6, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. After the resurrection, Jesus appears uh, to two people who had been, two men who had been following him, and those two men run to the 11 remaining disciples, and they say, we've seen the risen Lord, and the disciples won't believe it. They don't believe Jesus is risen from the dead. And so in Mark 16, 14, when Jesus appears resurrected before the eleven disciples, it says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he was risen. One more. There's a father of a demon-possessed boy who comes to Jesus looking for him to cast, Jesus to cast the demon out. And this is in Mark 9, 22. The man says to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, I think that's how he said it. If, if I can do anything, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. For one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. John Calvin commenting on that passage. This is a good one. I believe, help my unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect in this life, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance, patience toward us, as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. Calvin says, until glory, until we're perfectly made like Christ, we're always going to be, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus is working in our lives to challenge that unbelief, to draw us in to deeper faith, into deeper belief. When it comes to guilt and shame, the problem isn't your past sin, it's your present unbelief. Do you believe that Jesus paid it all or not? Because I know my heart, and there's a percentage of the time where I'm saying Jesus paid it all, but all doesn't exactly mean all, does it? I mean, I have to be contributing something to this. I have to get a pat on the back for something. I have to get credit for something, but no. 
Paul won't have it. He's going to say, said something uh, to Marshall that changed Marshall's life on the spot. And it can change our life on the spot. Too. He said, Marshall, your main problem is, in all your confessing of your sins, you've never confessed the most egregious sin. And that's the sin of unbelief. That's that you don't believe Christ can actually pardon you. You think that your sins are greater than Christ's mercy. That story I started about Tully and Chivijan earlier. His friend texts, there was a man named David. And Chivijan writes, yes, there was a man named David. But even more powerful and comforting is the good news that there is a man named Jesus. Unlike Daddy Bill, he says, I soiled my record. Regardless of how I live my life from now until the day I die, my season of sinful self-destruction will always be remembered and talked about. The hurt I caused myself and countless others will linger in many hearts and minds and cause people to doubt me, disparage me, and distrust me for the rest of my days. I've accepted that my blemished reputation with people is here to stay. There's no going back. But I believe that if Daddy Bill were still alive, he'd say something like this to me. Tullian, I may not be guilty externally of the same sins you are, but I assure you that my heart is no less sinful than yours. According to God's standard of perfection, I'm a failure just like you. The tributes about me speak to what people saw, but the gospel speaks as to what only God sees. All of our records are stained with sin, but the good news of the gospel 
is that Jesus' perfect record is ours by faith. When God looks at our account, he doesn't see all of our nasty withdrawals. Rather, he sees all of Christ's perfect deposits. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that because of Jesus, the sins we can't forget, God chooses not to remember. So take heart, failed one. Before God, the righteousness of Christ is all any of us needs. Before God, the righteousness of Christ is all any of us have. The question is, is it enough for you? Let us pray. Father, we sang earlier about tasting afresh the calm of sins forgiven. And I remember so well what it was like that first time I knelt down and said, God, for the sake of Jesus Christ, please forgive me. And I remember feeling what John Bunyan said when he said the gospel bids us fly and gives us wings because I felt like I was soaring to heaven. I don't always feel like that now. And I'm sure most of us don't always feel like that. Oh, but, you, but you give us such reason to in who Christ is and what Christ has done for us that we can sing as we're going to in a moment. Our sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, would you help us to feel that tonight so that if those of us who are in slumps right now might walk out of this place like the hymn says, hearing the lame called to walk and finding that by the gospel we actually have the spirit and the power to do it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 691, which is It Is Well With My Soul. Would you stand with me as we sing?
Now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.